freedom and censorship can't exist in the same world. And that's true whether it's the government or private corporations who do the censoring. Hi, I'm Ron Coleman, and welcome to the Coleman Nation podcast. It's a show where I sit down with guests to discuss the future of free expression and thought in our interconnected world. Here, we will focus on issues involving social media, cancel culture, and free expression that everybody who cares about ideas or freedom should be wrestling with. This is what everyone, everyone has been waiting for, Ron and Adam, but this time it's Adam and Ron. All those times I've been on your live stream and you really taught me how it's done, including manipulating all my friends to do retweets, guilting them, harassing them. It's so true. Only when you DM me after I already retweeted you. And I know your system doesn't account for that, but it's annoying. Because like you, I get, you know, is that what I do? There's a, there's a Would no, you say no, when you I DM you that I'm <laughs> harassing you? Annoying is not a bad thing. Do you know that? Because annoying sinks into you. So annoying is a bad thing, but it, annoying can be a bad thing if it's antagonistic. But if you're saying to yourself, this is in, the, this is in good spirit, Adam is being annoying, but it's in good spirit, and you recognize that I'm not trying to be a no, bad. No, no, listen. When I say annoying, it's like it, it's in it's in the, the in the manner of love, in in the manner of affection. Of course, you know that. You and I, you and I have spent many many hours together, more online at this point than offline, but plenty of time offline as well, exchanging ideas. Why don't you, Adam? First of all, believe it or not, you think everybody knows who and what you are. When I say what, I mean why we would care who you are. But not everyone does. You've just been kind of this internet, this Twitter Periscope personality now for the last year or so, really coming on strong, last couple of years, I guess, at this point. What's your, before we talk about the Ron and Adam backstory, let's talk about the Adam backstory, because even I, when people ask me who you are, I say, well, he's, he's this, that, and the other thing, and let's get it straight. So I'll give uh, you and everybody else kind of a, a quick bio, right? And I can give, I am capable of giving a three hour bio because I don't know when to stop. So uh, I'm gonna give you kind of the abbreviated bio. That's is, generous uh, of you. Yeah, yeah, so I knew very young that I wanted to go to uh, Wall Street. I even, I knew I wanted to go to Wall Street as a kid even before I knew what Wall Street was, okay? So I knew as a kid what my skill sets were and what I wanted to do with them. And I knew that I wanted to, um, kind of break out of a lower middle class existence, right? And uh, so that was kind of my purpose in life. So I didn't really care about school. I think kids shouldn't care about school either. I think it's a very bad thing. It's uh, kids are persuaded that the uh, proper route in life is to go to school and then get a job. I knew as a kid that the route I wanted to take would, uh, I would, uh, I would get, to the, get to the job that they were uh, in college trying to acquire. I would have that job by the time they graduated. I would have that job, so it really worked out. So, in um, I went as a kid to uh, PS Forty One, went to Friends Seminary, and um, PS Forty One in in Midtown. That's in Midtown, okay. Midtown, Muhammad Manhattan, Ali. folks. Well, it's a lower. It's on Fourteenth Street. It's on Eleventh Street. Muhammad Ali used to come to our school. I love Muhammad Ali. He turned me on to boxing. And uh, yeah, well, my father grew up on Second Street, so he would have called 14th Street Midtown. But I grew up on Fourth Street. We're on Second Street. We're on Second Street. 
like right um, where on Second Street. I mean, he, he, my father was quite a bit older than you. Uh, okay, well, so I grew up on Fourth Street and Avenue A. All right, I, I, I got to run that down. Okay, and I was born in I was born in 1966. So I knew at a young age that I wanted to go to Wall Street. I went to good schools. I was bored with the schools, not because I didn't think I not because I, they weren't kind of satisfying me intellectually, but I didn't think that they would be helpful in my career, and that's really what I was focused on. You were focused on a career as a yeah. young child. Yeah. All right. That's why you're. That's why you made money. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, I was very lucky. So. Uh, you know, I, I, I can't suggest that uh, the route that I took can be franchised out right, to every kid, but I knew what I wanted to do and I didn't want to uh, wait. I didn't see any benefit to me waiting. And I know kind of the mythology is you have to wait till you're 18 years old and then you can get a job and you're working. And that's somewhat true, but that doesn't mean that the time between 14 and 18 is, can be squandered. So uh, once I... Um, hit like 18 years old i spent a lot of my time actually 19 years old nancy gave me a book on wall street and that was it right that's what i knew i wanted to do so uh once i turned you know around 19 or so um i uh i knew it was time and i spent so much of the years before in the manhattan public library for business do you remember that library it was dedicated to business first it was on the no uh, okay so first manhattan public library on 42nd street had uh, a dedicated section for business and back then, everything was microfiche. Do you remember that? Sure, okay. I do remember the research from researching things on microfiche. Yeah, and it was scrolling, it was, scrolling, scrolling. But it took uh, effort, right? It took it took sweat. It took a mental sweat to do it, right? So if you're going to do that, you're not going to you're going to optimize your time doing it because it takes so much effort to do, right? So I would do that. I would take notes, and uh, I I uh, cold called into Wall Street. I cold called into a bunch of firms that I wanted to work for. And uh, it was a choice between Goldman Sachs, ultimately Prudential, Gruntle, um, pretty much everywhere. Um, there were some firms that certainly didn't want me. And then there was some firms that did. And I think the, the reason that they wanted me was because I was young. Isn't that crazy? You they were still wanted, in school. They wanted me because I recognized that there was an alternative path. And every company, every corporate that uh, knows they're going to be around in 10 years, also knows that they need to attract and retain the best quality employees. And I knew that at the time. So I was kind of pledging my loyalty. And when you, you know, and you don't do it in such, it's not kind of a, a formal, maybe it's an, uh, it's understood, it's a cordiality, right? That you know that they're um, uh, expending, and I knew it at the time, that they're um, kind of adopting you in a certain way. And uh, that uh, I knew that I would have to adopt them in a certain way. Did you think, do you think what you're describing would be possible in 2021? I think it's different. Yeah. I think it's much different because back then you had proximity. So back then- <clears throat> Physical, uh, geographical proximity. In other words, you were in New York. Well, yeah, and it wasn't just that I was in New York, but if I wanted to hang out with the boss, I could literally, I uh, used to just sit in their office because again, I was annoying, but I, would, <laughs> but I knew that they would understand it in the way it was so that they would come to love me as part of my annoying, they would understand that that's just an eccentricity part of my uh, personhood, right? So- So where'd so, you start out? So, where, so where'd you take the first job? I took the first job at Gruntle. Uh, actually, I had some training jobs before then. Um, there was a process, it was, there was just a process to go through. 
Uh, and then I uh, went to uh, Gruntle. Gruntle did very well. Uh, I, uh, I made one of few professional mistakes, which was I went to another firm. I took a big package. Uh, it was a very large package to go to another firm. Gruntle loved me. They really didn't want to see me go. And I was just had a little bit of wanderlust. And I felt that I kind of mastered that art and I was making a ton. And so I- And what uh, kind of work was it? You were, what was it being an analyst? Yeah, I had my own team, which was uh, an analyst, a researcher, and uh, a cold calling team and a trading team. So after a while back then, you used to be able to build up like a little fiefdom. And uh, I had, when I say we had our own analyst, we had debt, we had a, um, the analyst at the time who was- This is the early 80s, right? Uh, this is uh, late 80s. I went in, I got to Wall Street around 1987. So I got to Wall Street a month before it crashed. And uh, so I, I was very lucky that I had Rick Withington as an analyst. I used to sit in his office all the time. He was doing semiconductors. And, you know, I don't want to bother you or anybody else with kind of the story of semiconductors. But um, I used to just sit in his office. And then, you know, the CEO of the company, I used to sit in his office. Steve Cohen, who then, you know, went on to become a big guy, obviously. You know, we used to talk about this all the time. And just as I was sitting in people's office, so Steve Cohen was sitting in people's office also. And back then, you could do it because you had proximity to your CEO, you had proximity to the executives. So, and what I mean by that is, um, if you were taking the elevator at seven o'clock in the morning, they were taking the elevator at seven o'clock in the morning, and you could, uh, you could be in the elevator and they know the trick, right? They know what I'm doing, but they understood it and they appreciated it. And, um, you know, if, uh, if I was there at 8.30 in the morning, they would be there. You know, I would try and kind of mirror what they were doing, but no matter what, I would sit in their office. I would, you know, bring them some food, whatever it was. I don't think you can do that today. I don't, I don't think that same um, kind of route can uh, kind of a tax inversion type of route can be done today in the same manner. You know, one of my mentors, uh, co-founder CNN, I speak of him a lot because I'm so proud of him. He was a mailroom clerk and then he moved up and ultimately became the, the founder and uh, the co-founder of CNN and the founder of the Food Network. Uh, I don't think you can do that anymore because you don't have proximity to Mark Zuckerberg. You don't have proximity to Eric Schmidt. You don't have proximity to the uh, executive officers of these uh, companies. And the companies have gone much wiser because they've created very large buffers and bureaucracies between the executive staff and kind of the plebs. And they've done that because the plebs have become such terrorists, right? The, the contractors, the employees that they have, have become such terrorists that they're always looking to sue. They're always looking to be social activists. And, uh, you know, they're always looking to kind of be a terrorist within the company. They're always plotting how to fire their manager. They're always plotting to kind of uh, conquer by uh, um, kind of maliciously defeating uh, the uh, hierarchy of the company. And so the companies, in order to insulate themselves from that risk, the risk of the employees has created this enormous buffer. And uh, they've had to do this because look at what's happening with Spotify as an example. Joe Rogan uh, is not going anywhere. He's a revenue producer for the company. And you've got these uh, little twerps they want to bring social activism because they feel they have some collateral. Reality is that they don't have collateral. The CEO knows that. CEO of Spotify and the CEO of Google, CEOs, you know, they know that these employees don't have collateral, but
but they've been waiting for opportunities to fire these employees and get distance from them and turn them all into contractors. Because once you turn them into contractors, they lose any type of political capital and they also lose proximity to their coworkers. So they won't be able to kind of uh, in some way informally unionize themselves and have some type of a collective bargaining. And so I don't think- so to the, to, In other words, to develop a culture to develop a culture of the non-executive class or even the middle management class whose, whose values and priorities are not those of management and ownership. A good company has to be a dictatorship, right? And it can be kind of a benevolent dictatorship, but ultimately whoever founded the company, whoever took over as the CEO, it's, it's their company. And when you're working within a corporate environment, and this is you know one of the, we're going to have a bunch of dysfunctional kids on UBI, uh, universal basic income. Because the thing is, in a corporate environment, it's very rigid. It's very hierarchical. So you know, um, there when people are in the military, right? They understand that there's a boss, there's a boss, there's a boss, there's a boss. You can't escalate things. You go your way of if you have some type of a grievance, there's a certain process. There's a way of communicating things. There's a formality to the language because you know that whatever email you send is going to be circulated. Okay, so this goes back to one of our many conversations. You have repeated this rubric before about why are Ron and Adam not a, a meaningfully censored on Twitter? And you say, because we know how to color within the lines. We know how to work within organizations. And I wonder how true that is, though, now in a world where you have guys like Vindeman who is not who is not who is not even a general officer, a military officer, who decides that he's going to bring his idea of policy, of institutional administrative policy, into the White House and countermand the, the, the president of the United States, and that guy becomes a celebrity. And that guy, and there are no there are no um, negative consequences for him. And this is something we saw throughout the Trump administration is that people trumped Trump. People, you know, people now that might just be an unusual situation, but isn't that also what's happening in the in, in the, as a corporate America becomes woke that see, is it the CEOs who are doing it or are the CEOs responding to powers, to forces within their companies that make them believe that they have to do such absurd things as use massively obese women as underwear models. Okay. So I uh, have believed for many, many years, and uh, I'm sure I'm right. And a lot of people would say I'm, I'm wrong, but I've been right about everything. And they've been, uh, they have to cherry pick what they're right about. So, uh, <laughs> so I would say that I think uh, culture is downstream of politics. You know, when you've got the economy, opposite from what everyone else says, in other words, but everybody else is wrong. So when you've got an economy that's 20 trillion dollars, OK, it buys a lot of things, as we're seeing now, it buys a lot of things. And uh, despite people's claims of uh, fiat money and this and that, you know, kind of idiotic, childish, uh, sophomoric and sometimes soporific type of arguments, they're wrong as well, because uh, my bank accepts that currency. So I would say that. You know, they're printing 20, uh, we've got a $20 trillion economy and it buys a lot of things, it purchases a lot of things. So when you're speaking of Vindeman, I don't think that's a fair example because what you're looking at then is- uh, That's a non-market a non environment. 
Well, he was, uh, you know, he uh, successfully succeeded. He was like an aspirant to the elite class and uh, he succeeded. Now the issue then is because there are uh, always gonna be more elite aspirants, uh, aspirants than there are positions for them to occupy. So uh, he, you know, in this intra-elite competition, he was, he was one of the winners. So um, I, uh, I think his uh, ambitions, other people's ambitions, aspirants to, um, to the elite class have been thwarted and uh, his was successful. So I don't think he's a good example. Okay. I think you and I are probably better examples because you brought up Twitter and why, we, why uh, they're uh, generous to us to let us stay for the time being. Um, and um, I, I think um, you and I play within the rules uh, and are very aware of the rules. And I think that um, uh, many of the people who've been kicked off, and I see that Bronze Age pervert who I never followed, but I, you know, I have some familiarity, I suppose, kind of uh, in a kind of peripheral way, I suppose, with them, you know, wasn't very disciplined in his language. And you're gonna have this become a much bigger problem generationally because these kids will not know how to communicate in kind of a structural way. So um, this, they're, they're really gonna be handicapped by those who understand hierarchies. And you're creating a separate class now of W2s, which are the kind of elites within Amazon. And remember something, there's an inelastic supply, right? So you're gonna have the elites within Amazon, Facebook, you're gonna have elites within this uh, extra judicial system that uh, Biden has certainly uh, created. And uh, um, then you're going to have this other class, which is, has to be kept as contractors because they uh, threaten um, the uh, organism of the company itself. And the company uh, has, to, uh, has to keep away from that type of headline risk. So, you know, is what it is, but you and I kind of understand the rules. You live by those rules. You, under, you understand them and it's a part of the kind of the fabric of the way you communicate. And I'm sure you are always aware of what you're saying in the moments before you say it and you select the words appropriately. Um, and you're aware of how, it, how these words can be understood. I try and do the same thing. Um, most people don't, and it's only going to get worse. And uh, particularly as languages, uh, there's no longer any agreement on language. So somebody is going to say a word like supposedly, and um, it's not going to be understood by you and me. And you and I will be very intolerant of it. And that's not going to change. So, you know, there's a whole bunch of problems and that language can be communicated on, on Twitter as well, but it's also by communicating that type of language, it's also very quickly going to identify which caste system they belong. So, you know, the world is a changing place. Exciting times. Exciting, Exciting times. times. But before we before we completely forget the hyperlink several links clicks ago, you are on Wall Street. You're succeeding. You're building a, a, a practice around yourself. You end up being what a vice president or a partner in one of these uh, okay, so esoteric I, firms. Yeah. So I when I sold the firm. Uh, I started my own firm. I sold my firm. When I sold my firm, I didn't want to go back to Wall Street. You know, I, I, I did very well with it. I didn't want to go back to Wall Street because I still have that kind of uh, um, kind of pursuit, right, of, uh, of what makes me happy. And, you know, I don't, like, uh, I don't like repetition. I don't like pattern recognition. So I wanted to do something different than the same things and just because that's a problem with Wall Street is you know, the, these hedge fund managers, they're always trying to relive yesterday's uh, glory years. And uh, 
fortunately for them, they have that opportunity, but there was a big span of time when they didn't and the markets were not favorable to doing that. So I wanted to do something else. I became very active in what's called Silicon Alley, which is where Jason Calcanis started and Fred Wilson started. Sure, sure, sure. I remember those days. <laughs> I was active in a lot of the companies with them and investors and some of them did good, some of them didn't. And um, then um, uh, one of the companies that I became um, a very early investor in went, um, was about to go public. I had uh, given them a small loan. I wanted to take on uh, the sales position for them for a whole bunch of reasons. I got into it. Um, I had a lot of rights to the company prior to the IPO that I wanted to exercise. And back then they were franchised. They wanted to disenfranchise themselves. So they were acquiring all of them. And um, I, uh, I, I took on that role. I wound up also starting a company um, and selling it to them. So it was an outsourced accounting company. I knew where the kind of the gap was in their offering and I built a company to sell them. I pissed off the CEO very badly with it because I, uh, I got greedy, learned a lesson in life. Don't piss off people who love you and uh, don't get greedy. So uh, I uh, left there ultimately after six years, the stock went from um, uh, $20 to $2 a share and then from $2 a share to $60 a share. So I did well. Uh, went to work for a good friend of mine. On uh, a big mistake, don't work for uh, good friends of yours. But <laughs> I did an investor series with them. We're, you know, we're close friends, but you learn that lesson. And um, then, you know, China and China went public in 2012. So did Workday and a couple of other companies I was very engaged in. I didn't want to do any of that type of stuff again. So um, I, uh, you know, just became a very active investor in a whole bunch of things outside of those companies. I didn't, I didn't see any opportunity to do those companies again. There's no way you can build a new Trinet. There's no way you can build a new Insperity. Uh, there's no way you can build a new Workday. So back then, so I knew surveillance was going to be big, something that everybody is now aware of. I was very aware of the use, the, um, the um, transformation from uh, the Intel agencies to the private contractors, uh, because Intel agencies were not uh, don't have the staffing that they had anymore that they used to have, and those quality employees were being treated out. There was just a whole bunch of things. So I knew that Facebook was becoming kind of an outsourced uh, NSA, which is fine. I think they're much more responsible in that role. And uh, I became very active in you know, surveillance, very close with the NSA, very close with uh, Bloomberg, very close with Intel. Everything worked out well. We got very involved in India. And uh, you know, I'm trying to abbreviate it because then I'm going to talk too much. Okay, so consider it abbreviated. You got in. You're, you're in. A, you 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 were on Wall Street. You did well. You built things up. You did entrepreneurial stuff. You made missteps, but you made a lot of steps that were not missteps. You've got money. You use it, and then you became this sort of independent observer and analyst and and um jur journalist in the classic sense of you've been keeping your own journal for yeah, this well, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say that so i uh i i don't think i um foreclosed on investments to become a journalist i don't even think of myself as a journalist no i actually mean the journal that you keep for yourself the yeah. not 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 a um not journalism with a capital j but rather mm -hmm. what you have spoken about many times uh, with me on air and off the well i knew i knew many years ago i knew back in wall street days and then back in the insperity days when i had uh responsibilities to the shareholders to improve earnings sequentially that i knew that ultimately there's going to be uh conflicts 
because a company can only improve earnings so much without making a lot of moral compromise, without making a lot of ethical compromise, and without um, firing a lot of employees to gain some operational excellence and um, improving processes internally so much that you get so many basis points improvements and then firing employees. So uh, some you, back then you could reallocate employees, but these days with a lot of artificial intelligence and you know, a lot of machine learning, you can actually, uh, instead of reallocating them, you can just fire them. So you know, I knew 20 years ago that uh, this was gonna lead to where we are now, which is a demand for uh, absurd earnings improvements sequentially, and that you can only do so much. And uh, I saw that the people I knew who were politicians were just getting too rich. And there was just too much lobbying going on. And all of a sudden they had more money than uh, close friends of mine. Their apartments were uh, nicer than, than mine. And I couldn't understand how that could be. And uh, you know, they, they were just living beyond their means. And uh, you know, Robert Barnes and I have a common nemesis and uh, that person was living well beyond their means. And it's always, uh, it's, a, it's a, a leading indicator, I suppose, of uh, detection of uh, criminal fraud or a fraud when uh, somebody has an extravagant display of wealth. And th that's what was happening. So, you know- Somebody I, in politics? In particularly in politics, they were just the, there was no longer any constraint. And so I saw, you know, as a shareholder in these companies and as an executive in these companies, I saw the demand for earnings. And um, look at somebody like uh, Travis, right, from Uber. And what drove him to his uh, kind of malfeasance was all the stress and then all the stress to uh, produce a, a unicorn with significant returns. And then he brought on an executive team that, um, that rather than would constrain him from this moral kind of deficiency, would instead enable it further and contribute to the fraud that was occurring um, in, in every, a fraud that cascaded down. So, and then Travis was replaced. And, um, you know, I think you still have this challenge. So I, when I see that a lot of companies are, um, you know, we're doing open immigration and all this, I know that it's to improve their earnings. I, I know as an investor uh, and as an executive who's been on both sides of the marketplace, um, that they're looking to improve earnings. And this is, a, this is a dangerous thing. And you know, I knew this moment would come. So uh, I've been uh, recording this moment since about 2015. I've been observing Amazon. I've got a, you know, a team actually that has joined me. Um, something just happened. Oh yeah, cool. Um, well, that's just part of it. He was hiring employees that were stealing um, that were stealing trade secrets from Google um, and then um, bringing, you know, he paid somebody hundreds of millions of dollars to steal trade secrets from Google, from uh, Google and bring them over our ways. Um, they were doing what's called a God view. They were getting special, what's called entitlements from Apple, which permitted them to key log your phone. So on Apple, Apple was giving them special privileges that allowed them to key log, which is, you know, um, insane. Capture the screen. There was they were doing a lot of wrong things, and then they they uh, employed a lot of uh, Obama executives to get them out of trouble. And you know it's a whole bunch of things. One of your favorite people in the world, Eric Holder, um, David. <laughs> uh, Eric, Eric, yeah. So, but I don't want to complicate things too much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
but so you know what you're seeing now has uh is kind of this confluence of all these of all these interests and it's interesting so i've i've tried to uh observe it and share with people what's going on and i remember you and i spoke uh you know before trump uh you know lost his seat and i said you know trump's gonna lose and i did that deliberately to watch your reaction i did the same thing to will uh chamberlain who's an awesome guy i did the same thing to uh alan bukhari who's an awesome guy right uh, i would test him and i even sent alan that uh that uh mean type of thing of that uh person screaming no because clinton had lost i said don't let this be you and i warned you also don't emotionally invest so much of yourself that you're going to be emotionally depleted when trump loses and um you know it, it is what it is i like what lee smith has described lee smith says that we've been conquered i like i like the way he says that lee smith is awesome yeah and what was it what, what about i mean Lisa said, "What about this?" Lee Smith in a in a I think it was a DM chat or a text chat that you uh, and I gave me kind of new ways to visualize it, which is a good new ways to visualize it and also new ways to kind of uh, ponder it and also you know ponder it in my mind, but then also kind of have it cross the transom to the real world. Well, you know what 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 threw me for a loop, Adam, wasn't in and of itself Trump losing because I've been involved on different levels, but always emotionally in politics for a very, very long time. And I'm used to disappointment. What did throw me for a loop was the utter failure of so many institutions that could have prevented. I'm not saying YouTube. I'm not saying that Trump won the election. Understood. I'm just saying that a lot of things went really, really wrong. And people who had the responsibility to put a break on them, refused to do so. And that that made me two things. It made me really lose a, lot, a certain amount of idealism that I had about the system that I work in. And it also made me uh, a little bit less committed to the values that that system espouses, even in its idealized form, to slightly different things because I see that, that it makes me think that the cynicism and, and lack of um, authenticity and the lack of, of, of honesty is so deep that it makes me, as, to quote a Ross Chast cartoon, this makes me doubt everything you've ever said before, which I, I think is, is, a, is a, you know, a, a, not, not a line that she invented, but it's where I first saw it. In any case, yes, you, so you saw all this coming you were saying, you saw this coming a couple of years ago based on your kind of, so, so I mean, in the process of doing the work that you did over the years, you became a sort of social observer. Well, I, I, I would say that I was uh, sharing my thoughts and you know, some of, I recently went through kind of a purge of my Twitter because I'm, I know that I'm very vulnerable to getting uh, kicked off. And uh, you know, and Twitter's, you know, terms of service are very, uh, uh, are very uh, asymmetrical yes. in that they, they reserve the right and reserving the right means they can or can't, right? That's what reserving the right, they can kick you off or they can't kick or they don't want to kick you off, but either way they have that right to do so. In theory, right. And in but, practice, in actual practice. Yeah, I was going to say in, in, in theory and in actual. And uh, I just don't want to have that vulnerability to, uh, 
to either of my flanks because I do want to share with people and I do enjoy Twitter. So I went through a purge, but in that purge, I didn't delete anything that was significant in any way. It was mostly just comments to people. It was uh, making sure that there was no uh, DMCA violations, right? Um, just, you know, just making sure that, uh, that the obvious transgressions that might make me vulnerable were gone. And I, I, I you know, since, you know, 2017, I've, when I really came onto Twitter full force, I've been sharing these things. I have always worried about the uh, militarization of the police. And uh, this was true under Trump and it was true under Biden. They're both kind of, if you take a look, I was so opposed to Biden, to Trump saying we should bring the military in to attack Antifa in Seattle, right? And Jack Posobiec um, even said, these are not Biden people. These are just real insurgents combined with real issues. And there was just, a, it was a lot of infiltration. And I said, you know, if you bring in, and then the riots that were going on, and I'm not commenting on the underlying social issues in any way, I'm talking about insurgents that introduce violence into the mix, right? Uh, and they do so for Republicans, they do so for Democrats, right? You know, and, and Jack Kozovic wrote a really good book about this. So, um, and we, because those are their tactics, right? So, um, Trump, you know, I remember Trump saying uh, he wants to bring in the military. And I'm like, once the military is in, as you see with the green zone in DC, military never leaves. Once the military set up that green zone in DC, people were now behaviorally conditioned to see that. So when it was somewhat dismantled, now people are already behaviorally conditioned to see it kind of uh, replicated from city to city and from uh, uh, dc -er to dc -er. Um, And it, it's, gonna get, it's gonna get worse. It's gonna get a lot worse. So I've wanted to share these things. I've always worried about the militarization of the police. Yeah, it's a really good book. Do you know something? I've got it. It's in my other shelf. Because I finished it, it, because I finished it and I don't leave it on my coffee uh, table, it, it's on my other shelf now. The book I'm actually, oh, I got Mike Ferguson's book here. I share Mike's book on. So, um, so I, I've, I've used Twitter to kind of share these things, but I've used Twitter and I continue to use Twitter, not as much for other people, but I do it kind of selfishly because I have a lot of difficulty, as we all do, taking all this jumble of thoughts and, um, kind of uh, having it cross the transom into something that uh, is intelligible outside of my own head. Does that make sense to you? Yes. So um, Twitter has been very helpful for me to uh, take all that jumble of thoughts, all these kind of neurons that are firing and all the stimulus. Neurons, neurons, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so it sounded like you said morons. And oh, no, no, no. All those neurons that are firing, all the sensory and, and the way we're all being overloaded by media, and to be able to kind of uh, uh, process it, but also to be able to explain it. So, you know, for example, the term fastest role of power in history, I think is elegant and it's elegant for me uh, because it gives me a contextual framework. I like the way, I'll, I'll hold, give me one second. I like the way Lee Smith described- Wait, what's, the what's the term again? The fastest role of power. Fastest role of, of power, yes. Who, who was it, and who was it who always used to say that? Who always, always says that, says that? That was me. That was you. I can tell you. Do you know how many notes, how, how many citations I get from people's PhD works these days? I, I, I used to get like one or two a week where people actually wanted permission. I guess it's required for their citation to say that. I'm like, are you serious? Are you no, serious? No, no such thing. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 
very helpful for people. So I like what Lee Smith said about uh, con a conquering force. Uh, and I think that's, that's a good way to, uh, to explain it. And I mean, in terms of the uh, belligerence, I'm not talking about legitimacy or illegitimacy or kind of this or that, but the belligerence uh, that we're that we're all subjected to is uh, is hostile, right? It's a hostile regime. So, you know, is what it is. Speaking of, so so now to to uh, counteract that belligerence to some extent, you you thought it would be uh, fun for us to talk a little bit about how you and I started our conversations on your famous live streams, uh, and uh, you wanted to tell that story. Well, I thought it would be interesting. So I think the first one I did, uh, I did two that were solo. And then I, I wanted to do one with Alan. I've been wanting to do one with Alan for like a year and a half before that. I was waiting and how to... many have you done with Alan? Uh, I think three. I did one on his. Uh, I think he did two on mine. I did one with um, with Chuck, who go, got awesome. Uh, and I did one with him solo. I did two with you solo. Because you know, it was before Trump won. I wanted to help people emotionally disengage, right? I wanted to help people remember to invest and that the world's not gonna end when Trump loses. And I wanted at the same time to discuss what was going on. But I also thought it was very, very interesting. At that time, it was that uh, those, those children at the school, um, th that school that had uh, kind of betrayed its own uh, its own students and its alumni, and it was a kid with that red cap who uh, had a had a. Uh, oh, you mean the, the Covington kids? The Covington kids. I was so fascinated by that, and the not just the legalistics of it. That's me, oh, Alan. Yeah, Alan's yeah, awesome. He's, He's great. Yeah, he really is. He really is. And so I would, uh, I was fascinated by the Covington kids, the betrayal that the school had. I was fascinated by how they, uh, you know, how they had to, um, how, and how the media was able to, um, you know, completely turn that into a, a you know, a, a counterfactual narrative. I mean, it was. It was interesting because what they did, and you can see that it became a trend. It was already a trend, but you see that that gave it kind of some moral authority. Is they took that, they took that adolescent, and they took those adolescents, and particularly him. And it's really kind of at the point where he was at the, the last kind of concluding stage of his childhood. So they caught him deliberately at, um, at this moment when uh, he was completing his kind of adolescent process, right? And right. He, his identification was going from one to the other. So uh, he would, they, they caught him at a time when other kids at the same basic age as Greta, right? That was no coincidence because his, his uh, identity, the media wanted to make, was no longer an identity of uh, playfulness. It's no longer identity of, of childhood and kind of uh, the zest of youth. And uh, you know they, they wanted to give it an evil characterization. And it's no coincidence that they took him at the same age as, as they took Greta. So I thought it was just really fascinating. I knew you were doing stuff with it. I knew later on, um, you know, we had discussed a little bit offline. I knew that uh, you were, uh, I had expected you to become more engaged with that. So I was really fascinated by the Covington kids. I was really fascinated because at that time, social media um, had uh, not yet gone into uh, where it is now, right? Right. So it had not yet 
uh, kind of inched itself forward to really now where it's really an, uh, clearly an encroachment of constitutional rights. Um, and, you know, um, I, I'm certainly not a constitutional scholar. I'll let other people negotiate that type of stuff. But uh, clearly an encroachment of, of, uh, of the way people communicate, identify, the way they congregate, the way they collectively share ideas. Um, so, you know, and, and you were really, uh, you were at that time were probably the uh, most authoritative, uh, had the most authority into your commentary. Robert, you. Robert Barnes as well. I think Robert Barnes was more kind of case specific. Yeah. Uh, while as you were kind of looking at things kind of more system in that case. So uh, we, we did one. It was so much fun. Um, was that I, the one that went three hours that, or, or two, two hours or something and I wasn't I ready? The first one, I think the first one went like an hour and 10 minutes. That's when I was a lot more disciplined. Into, uh, <laughs> and I think the first time that I started running over was like with Darren Beatty. I think it was the number two one. And that was because people have a lot of questions. And I'm a huge fan of Periscope. I still am. I think it's the best way to engage. And even though Twitter is now has made it a little bit more um, uh, difficult, it's still the most frictionless platform. I don't like Zoom, which is what we're on now, because I feel that uh, it's, a, it's a destination in itself. And I feel that it's got a little bit of friction to go over to Zoom. Uh, I don't like YouTube. I don't like the, um, the terms of service and kind of the enforcement that, that YouTube has and the fluidity of how they define these terms. Uh, I think they're the worst. I remember Mike Cernovich saying a year ago, Twitter, what, if he was like talking about censorship and what the media permits, and he was uh, said, listen, Twitter is the most uh, generous. I've never forgotten that. And I've seen that. And I'm sure you've seen that also. Twitter is by far the most generous. So I try and keep away from YouTube. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I agree with you. I mean, and I think, you know, there, people talk about, about alternative platforms. They will always be alternative platforms. They, this is where the conversation still takes place. And that, you know, that, that is not likely to change in the near term. Things that, and I mean, speaking, speaking of, of, of predictions, and because believe it or not, I, I'm a little bit more disciplined well, can, um, I, can I just add something to what you just said? It's very yeah. important. Uh, and I just retweeted our thing, by the way. I forgot to do it before. But I think it's very important to understand this. I was very anti-parlor. I'm very anti-getter. I'm very anti-gab. I don't think that's the solution. I think that's the problem. I think that's kind of a cowardice. Because I, as kind of a normie, and you as a normie, and most of us on Twitter who engage, I would say Jack posted it, right? Um, Jack Murphy, uh, they might have certain personas that are a little bit uh, 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 edgy. Edgy, yeah. But they are very much normies, right? They're very much normies. Uh, they're just kind of uh, fringe normies, but you know, they're but they're normies, right? Uh, Jack, does I want to stay on Twitter because I've got so many great people here. I don't want to go to those sites where it's just a bunch of people who've been kicked off for sharing crazy memes. That's right. And so those things are kind of honey traps. And A, they can never succeed. I don't care what it is. I don't care if it's Getter. I don't care if it's Trump. I don't care what it is. Because the demands of Congress uh, and the legislation of Congress and the enforcement ability of Congress demands so much kind of um, 
uh, expense on these, these social media companies to employ artificial intelligence, machine learning, to staff up basically with thousands of contractors to be able to kind of teach their AI, to be able to shut off things automatically. So there's never gonna be a substitute for these things. So even, um, you know, Clubhouse, and I like Clubhouse, I know Mark and Jason is in there, and you know, I know a bunch of people are in there. Uh, Clubhouse is either gonna have to conform or um, they're, they're gonna have to uh, be, uh, um, be either acquired, and that would be part of their conformity, or they're gonna have to close up shop because there's too much headline risk, there's too much legislative risk um, in, in that business model. So there's never gonna be an alternative, but now a person needs to stay within Twitter. And you can only stay within Twitter if you abide by their rules. So I feel that I have enough of the command of language, and I know you do as well, I don't need to use curse words. I've got, curse words are kind of idiotic substituents for kind of uh, thoughts, right? It's not even a shorthand. Curse words are for idiots, uh, particularly on Twitter, where you know that you're operating under a microscope. So when I see people who are saying, I'm gonna use whatever foul language I want because this is free speech, they're idiots. They're absolute idiots and they're jeopardizing everybody, but I just don't wanna use that language. I wanna stay on Twitter. So, you know, I know that people's friends created Rumble and all this type of stuff. I know that Darren did incredible on Rumble with his thing with Tim Pool, 2 million views. And I'm a huge fan of, huge fan of Darren. Uh, and he gets a little carried away sometimes. Nevertheless, uh, real type of a discourse and kind of dialogue can still happen on Twitter. I think you're right. I think you're, I think you're, I mean, look, to be very clear, you can do nothing wrong whatsoever and be banned from Twitter. There are, these are the cases though, you could argue that actually prove the rule, which is that by and large, I'm suing Twitter and I'm here having this conversation with you on Twitter. They do not have to let me on Twitter. Sure. I can say Ron Coleman is, is, a, is a class enemy. Ron Coleman is simply an, an existential enemy. No, I don't the, think they think that. I've been in business. I, I think, I don't think they uh, are underestimating the um, potential of a threat from a Ron Coleman. I don't think that they feel that there's any reason. Again, you know, the new, the new, and I've warned a lot of people that the new terms of service is going to be a, a little bit uh, hazardous to, to a lot of people on, on, on Twitter, particularly with DMCA. And I've even looked you up. I've looked you up on Lumen to see what type of uh, violations you have. Um, so I would say, and that's one of their kind of lines of attack. And, and it, it's them also being terrorized by the media companies, right? So it's also them being kind of vulnerable to their, to their, on their flank. So I would say that they reserve the right to enforce a rule or not to enforce a rule to interpret it the way they want. They also reserve the right to, um, that you um, are, are basically, by using Twitter, they, um, they've indemnified themselves from any type of commercial loss. I mean, you know this type of stuff from your commercial, from a commercial loss of a client. So you can't sue them and say, because they kicked me off, I lost all this money. But, and they can keep, kick people off for no reason, but you're not a threat because you're not trying to hijack the platform. So the thing is with these people, and I don't know this guy, Bronze Age, I don't know any of these people, but, and you know, I don't know that guy, Warhan from Xenos, whatever that guy's name was, who was one of the early people kicked off. But these people, I remember all of them in 2015 saying, we get more traffic than you know, CNN and you know, we're gonna show the world how it's done and the old days of seeing. I'm like, you guys are idiots, they're gonna kick you off. They were hijacking the platform. 
Ron Coleman is not hijacking the platform. Ron Coleman is not hijacking the brand of Twitter. I suppose you're right. I said that, I mean, that's a way of looking at it. I mean, the, you know, the reason I'm suing, I'm, I'm suing Twitter, however, is precisely because of someone who I think wasn't doing that, but who was far, but was a threat, was too powerful, um, but who was a really high, high value target. You know, which is Rogan O'Handley, who has three million followers on Instagram. So he wasn't as influential on Twitter, but Who's Rogan O'Handley. I've heard the name. Decent is that, the guy, that, is that, that the guy that did the Proud Boy? No. No, Rogan O'Handley, not to be confused with Gavin McGinnis, Rogan O'Handley's DC Drano. And that's the lawsuit. Um, Why did he get kicked off? And I know that you've got that lawsuit. I had heard the name, and I'm certainly not challenging the merits of it. You're, you know, you know this stuff, you're, obviously, right? Uh, why did he get kicked off of Twitter, though? And if you can discuss, so yes. whatever. No, no, I can't. No, we would talk, we love to talk about it. Uh, what happened was he was, um, they made a, I'm going to actually do a, a screen share on this so people can follow along at home. So in 2018, the state government of California commit, uh, created the Office of Elections Cybersecurity to edu educate voters with valid information on election laws and procedures. And they ended up becoming a political weapon for censorship. They... Um, Leading up to the 2020 elections at the direction of government employees at the California Elections Cybersecurity Office, they, they told tweets, they told Twitter what tweets to remove, which Twitter did. And then they actually told Twitter to, uh, to remove all of his tweets. And in February 2021, or, or to, several of his tweets, in 2021, Twitter permanently suspended Rogan altogether for tweeting, quote, most votes in American history, which was meant sarcastically, obviously, but is not hijacking the platform. Um, so the Secretary of State, which who is responsible for operating this bureau, this, this was a tweet, by the way, that, that was made uh, well after the, you see here, there's a, um, a screenshot here of one of the uh, judicial watch had gotten a whole bunch of these emails. And here in, on 1117, DC Drano says, he claims California is a culprit of voter fraud and ignores the fact that we do audit votes. This is a blatant disregard of how our voting process works and creates disinformation and distrust among the general public. In other words, they didn't like what he said and they th even thought it was false. So they said, take that tweet down. That's that's just censorship, and that's by the state. Yeah. So what happens? What happens with this is again, we're in the transformation of our people, and I want to get to that loss in just a moment. But um, we're in the transformation of our people operating system, and as you know, you know, I, I speak Mandarin. I've also been discussing China and the China Communist Party, and I want to distinguish between the Chinese Communist Party and, and ah, China yes, Party. I'm glad you mentioned this. Was something we definitely have to get to before our hour is up, which is soon. Okay, so I've been discussing them as a leading indicator because I saw what was happening there and I saw that our own elites wanted to employ kind of our equivalency of, 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 of that type of uh, regime. So um, now what's, and I had this conversation with Michael Anton recently, and now you know what's happening is, and I'm certainly not challenging or contesting any part of the election, so I want that understood. Um, and I, I certainly accept it. And you know, I, I want to make sure that uh, my words are not misunderstood. 
Uh, but now we're at the same point where uh, China, the Chinese Communist Party and our own United States government have to present themselves as infallible, right? And you're now challenging your entire challenge the way I just read it. And it, you're on the legal, you're on the, the legal battle of it. So, uh, but uh, my just informal um, observation of the skirmish is that uh, the government wants to present itself and California wants to present itself as infallible. And I think that's a fascinating case that you've got. I think it's fascinating. I'm very, uh, I'm uh, very interested in uh, in keeping. Yeah, keep it, keep an eye on it. And you see. And by the way, why did why did a did an uh, you know a, a guy like you who's on top of so many things not know about this case because it has been not it has not been reported. Okay, that's not bad. But well, it's bad. It's, it's I mean, it's not the end of the world. Well, it means you can't get the weight of popular support. But you're not supposed right. to get the weight of pop. You're if you want to be a uh, a dissident that play, a kind of a Vaclav Havel, right? That stays within the system, right? As Vaclav did, um, then um, if you want to be a Havel, you've you, either you're going to write beautiful poetry, right, or you're going to uh, chip away at the way you're doing now. That's right. right? The same well, thing with Ron. But look, Ron Coopy was doing that 25 years ago, and you know, you take a look at. I knew when um, that guy Andrew McCarthy was uh, prosecuting um, the um, the woman who was representing the one-eyed terrorist, right? The one who was uh, the uh, the one who who was responsible for the bombing of the initial bombing of World Trade Center. Oh, right? oh yeah, okay. Oh, yes, right. Yeah, yeah. And he was the you know he was the prosecutor, and they were literally just making stuff up about the woman who was representing him. No, I'm not oh, saying right, so that they could monitor their conversations with him. Yeah, and they were they were just making stuff up, and I and I you know I gave money to it, but I became aware of it, and I'm not saying that uh, she wasn't um, treacherous. That's a different argument. That's a completely different argument. Right. But uh, I'm saying that you still have to play by the rules, right? So I think it's it's important that uh, you're 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 playing by the rules and you're shipping away. So I'm very intrigued. I'm very intrigued by the case, but. As a dissident, as a dissident lawyer, they're just not going to permit you uh, the uh, weight of, of popular support, and that's, that's to right. be expected. That's right, and, and that's the world we're living in. And and to the extent that Twitter, and it's in its generosity, whatever the motivation is for that, allows us to even have the discussion, I, I accept it gladly because we do have to raise funds for for that case, and we do have to make people aware of it. Adam, we owe it. To you as our guest and a guy who's who's busy, and to people who uh, I try not to overtax, uh, not, not like that trick you pulled on me, um, you know, to keep it to an hour. I think this is actually the longest discussion I've had with anyone, but that's not surprising because you've got so many interesting things to say, and you and I always, always, always How have a have terrific time. How long have we gone? It has been an it's been fifty six minutes because we started at two o two. Does any uh, of your guests? I'm not sure if you can uh, see questions, but. I want to be responsive to other people because I'm so appreciative that uh, people hopefully may have joined us on this. That's true. There's that. Okay. So, hey, Ron and Adam, do you think the current medical insanity is more about big pharma profits or power and control? That, of course, has nothing to do with our discussion, but we can. Well, okay. So, I, I think it's important for everybody that they not speculate, right? I, don't, I think it's important that people don't speculate about the origin or about kind of uh, tactics and uh, 
kind of conspiracies one way or the other. I think it's important that we just kind of in this instance that we just uh, kind of live in the moment and we kind of observe what's going on now. And I think the other important thing is that uh, you're going to expend a lot of emotional energy um, kind of uh, in, a, in this kind of pursuit of truth maybe because you're never going to find it. So, um, you know, I'm certainly not saying people should take a vaccine, not take a vaccine. You know, this is a, you know, some people have immunosuppression disorder. So I certainly don't, you know, I'm not a doctor. I don't know what people's medical conditions are, but I, I'm, um, I don't want to speculate. I'm trying to keep a log of the fastest rollup of power in history. And that is, that's include, includes a lot of things. It includes the Black Lives Matter protest. It includes so much stuff. It includes all the uh, kind of the uh, intellectual hazards that we experienced from and, 2006. And it includes Big Pharma, presumably. Big Pharma has been a part of it for a very long time. Big Pharma in 2019, in 2019, in uh, early 2019, committed $10 billion to their advertising spend for uh, media, okay? And a big chunk of that was going to go to social media and uh, to the social media spend. So not only that, but uh, pharma is also spending uh, billions of dollars on these doctor-patient groups on Facebook. So we, you know, I, uh, I don't, uh, and also, and Facebook has been kind of, there's been a cordiality that Facebook has not, uh, since 2019, since early, uh, mid-2019, Facebook has not permitted any type of, uh, uh, real conversations and i don't know the conversations so i don't want to make any suggestions but they have been uh very quick to shut down anything that they that appears to their algorithms as anti-vax and so now we're in a place in 2021 where um the uh the you know pharma has a, a bit of a asymmetrical advantage that a lot of what they've uh, a lot of the systems and infrastructure for shutting down argument about vaccines and other things were actually architected in 2019. So in 2019, they committed to a $20 billion spend. In the middle of 2019, they, uh, they, as they started allocating the money and spending the money uh, for 2020, they, uh, part of their budget was in social media, part of their budget was traditional media, part of their budget was experiment, was uh, experiential type of stuff, which is like sweet time, you know, it's a whole different type of thing. And another several billion dollars, another several billion dollars was to doctor patient advocacy groups. And then of course there's the regular several uh, you know, hundred million dollar plus in lobbying. And so, you know, for us, I think we we you know we can't get lost in things that are unresolvable, right? I think we have to fight the battles that can be um, that can be fought and I think can be successful. For example, right now, where they're making dissidents. Kind of an enemy of the state, but they're not uh, defining what a dissident and an enemy of the state is. All that ambiguity uh, is is uh, hazardous to my health. So, and that's that something we can push back on. That's something as a practical oh, yeah. matter we can push back Absolutely. on. 100%. So, so, so let me just you know, since you, since you seem, I mean, if I'm gonna read questions, and I have one from from what appears to be John Hayward, the great John Hayward who says on YouTube, remind me guys, what's the name for the system of government where political parties control private corporations and use them as instruments of compulsive force against citizens? I think I know what he's talking about. Okay, so Chris Hedges came up with a phrase uh, years ago 
that I really like. And I'm so glad that now I finally get to use it. Uh, and unfortunately, I'm also uh, so glad that I finally get to use it, which is he called this uh, an inverse corporate totalitarianism. I think that's very interesting. So, you know, I'm kind of a, in the, within certain things. I'm a specialist within certain things within China. Obviously, as people might know, within family, I have a family office. We have a lot of financial investments that are bearish on Chinese Communist Party. We did very well with the fall of one, everything else. Um, so I have a lot of familiarity, both with the diplomacy that they use and kind of the uh, apparatus. And in China, it's government infiltrates the largest companies. Tencent is really a front for their political elites. And uh, China Exim Bank, um, which is kind of an on this expeditionary force to take over the world through these horrible opaque loans, is really um, a uh, what appears to be uh, the uh, the elites and laundering, you know, for the elites, and it's really elite, the elites employing. So the Chinese Communist Party um, has has a different uh, it's a different people operating system, and there the the elites uh, infiltrate the companies, and they do so using many many tactics. So recently, you know, people have people have become aware of TikTok. The founder of TikTok was also the founder of ByteDance, and uh, his earlier company. I'm going to call it Tawtaw so that people have an easier time finding it. Um, I'm going to have to get my battery. So hold on for a second. So, <laughs> hold on, hold on. Our last so the last time Adam did this, it was on his live stream. I took the opportunity to, to talk to people uh, alone about how I'm working with him and, and how I think that it's important for people to understand that a lot of the things Adam says, you, you know, they're part of the therapy, they're part of the treatment. And as as a community, we owe it to him to help him out, listen listen to him, and you know help him through this time. Okay, yeah, you were saying so about you and the Chinese continue. party. Let me continue with that. And I really appreciate the question. Uh, so in China, the infiltration is top down, right? At a certain point, so ByteDance was Yiming, who was the CEO of Yiming, and and uh, one of ByteDance's companies, as they were investors, was a company called Taotao. Um, and I'm using kind of an Americanized way so that people can easily find it, right? And it's uh, uh, T-A-U-T-A-I-L. So um, the, the, the way they um, took over, uh, the way the Chinese Communist Party took over is they employed the same tactics uh, within their own um, governmental agencies. They said, that, um, they said that the videos that were being shared, because it's very similar to YouTube, the videos that were being shared were creating a lot of social upheaval and social dissent. And it was basically the same issues where we have here where it's unsanctioned uh, user-created content, right? So, um, so in, in China, in the Chinese Communist Party, because they're reformulating the country and its, its operating system, they have something called the four consciousnesses of, of Xi. And what that is, is it's uh, several, it's the four ways in which every business and every person has to uh, show kind of an adoration for the Chinese Communist Party. And it looks at business and it looks at everything else. So, so Yiming did this entire confession on their equivalency of medium, right? Kind of the place where uh, people nail their confessions to the church door. Right? And um, he uh, expressed his uh, sorrow for violating and specifically the four consciousnesses of, of Xi. And, um, and shortly thereafter, you know, he left the company and then he, you know, he found a TikTok. Um, and 
And just so you know, sidebar is there's a reason TikTok is basically uh, soft pornography for for young boys, and uh, which is really what it is. They always have a very you know beautiful girl, right? That's how that's uh, that's Chinese propaganda, incidentally. It's it's that's how they're delivering messages, um, so that it kind of radiates out. So in the United States, it's exactly opposite. In the United States, these governments, if you take a look at the way what Groundworks was, which was the Google uh, spin out, essentially a spin out, which was designed to capture all of this fragmented information that Google collects and that all these other repositories have collected, Twitter, uh, all the big data that is essentially that's been collected into all these repositories was then going to be consolidated into Groundworks so they could do very, uh, very uh, very specific micro-targeting, right? So rather than just go after soccer moms, they could kind of customize ads and they could also inform their artificial intelligence, which if I recall correctly, was called Ava. And it was supposedly uh, supposed to tell Hillary where she should be campaigning and what type of people even should be joining in it. So we would even say, bring white women in their forties with you to shake hands on behalf of Hillary. So um google has created a revolving door into into government so they've been very involved for the last seven years they actually now nine years in center for american progress they really infiltrated that um they've been very involved in the clinton foundation very involved in the state department and it's been kind of a revolving door so the way that these uh companies infiltrate is kind of bottom up while as in china it's top down but ultimately, you're getting to the same place, which is you have one political party in the United States. You're allowed, um, you're allowed to have other political parties in the United States, but only under the agreement that they not be adversarial. Right? You can have, uh, you can have the Republican Party. Uh, they only just can't. They can't win any elections. Oh, well, they can win elections, but they can't be adversarial. So. China, oh, okay. I get it. Right. Yeah. I mean, this is none of this is new. So one of the things I've had to do in order to be able to make sense of the thoughts that are in my head is I've had to read a lot of Machiavelli, a lot of political science. I've had to read a lot of Thucydides. Everyone should read Corsairo, uh, the book four of, um, of uh, Thucydides, which is Corsairo, which is what their civil war was, because this is a lot of this is 2,300 years old. The distortion of language, the distortions of the meaning of language is very, very old. So I've actually been fascinated watching it replay here as well as you know, politicians employing the same tactics of popular appeal. It's just very interesting. So um, Google and all these companies, they get to the same place, which is really where they want to get to. And it also gives you a leading indicator where we, we, where we are going to get to. Adam, I don't deserve you. Yes, you do. I don't it's, deserve you. It's been, a it's been a great discussion. We did. One more question. Look for one more question, because I know we pinged a lot of people. Just see if there's anything interesting. Oh, I actually, oh, let's see here. Yes. Um, Gulsher asks. And I appreciate, that. I appreciate that question from John, by the way. And if I recall, actually, I do recall, you know, he and I really have to meet in the city, right? We really do because uh, we're like, uh, we're like distant cousins almost. Really? Turns out, yeah. Well, we're not. I said almost, almost. Oh, you're like, you're like distant cousins, almost. That is pretty hedgy, pretty hedgy looking, uh, sounding. So Gulcher Karachi asks. It seems we go back some more of like a comment, uh, and okay. So he says it seems the political environment has calmed down without the agitating words of the orange man, 
you seem correct about hijacking the pl platform. Two separate comments, really. He says that, that the orange man agitated words. I think he actually kept alive a certain amount of, I mean, I think there's more censorship is actually taking place now than took place when he was president. It's, it's that, if you call that calming, it's calming. If I recall Gulcher, and I know that they've joined others, I, if I recall correctly, they're uh, Muslim, and I believe they might live in Toronto. That might be correct. And if they could type in if I'm correct, and I certainly appreciate it. If he's it. still with us, it's been that question was asked a while ago. Yeah, and so I... Oh, Toronto, it's ironic, right? So Canada, they've been, they've, they've been really... Um... Canada is a leading indicator, as is Germany, as is Australia. So they are basically doing what I think I've seen Jack Posobiec say about other things. They're basically doing A-B testing on messaging. So really uh, watch out what they're saying over there because once they do the A-B testing, they're, uh, whatever was successful, they're doing over here. Yes, and, 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 and Justin, actually, uh, my producer, wanted me to make sure that I asked Justin's question, which I was also about to ask. How long, and I know, I know what your answer is going to be, how long until the social credit score becomes reality? And Gulshan, by the way, he's Australian. Sydney, Australia, good guess. Uh, he doesn't really want us to know where he really lives. Just kidding, Gulshan. Uh, Justin Bergman, how long until the social credit score becomes reality? Okay, well, we have to define what the social credit system, not a score, what the social credit system is. And that's got to be really understood. And I'm not going to go into kind of the plenaries and the 14th Congress and a bunch of other things. Uh, the plenary that introduced the idea of the social credit system and um, how it's uh, how the uh, repository for all that data is uh, then collected and, and, uh, and put into the social credit system. But I think what's more important is what our uh, version of it looks like and why it's really a problem. So in China, because of the type of uh, people operating system that they have, um, it, they've always been able to define what the ideal citizen is, right? Uh, they've always been able to define and coerce that behavior. And so now they've uh, kind of codified that. Um, so they've always been able to kind of, they've always had tactics to be able to kind of enforce that and to preserve that and create social stability. Social stability meaning, you know, this is what a good citizen does, this is what a good citizen doesn't. However, in the United States, there's never been an agreement of what a good citizen is, right? A good citizen, some people look at it as kind of a constitutional, right? Other people look at it as kind of a liberal issue. There's just a lot of ways that people imagine and a lot of iterations of what a good citizen was. So you and I grew up under, you and I grew up where community, the definition of community um, was people with divergent views who could get along. Right? That was the definition that we, you and I grew up with of community. Community has been kind of uh, reconstituted to uh, a, a, a group of people where everybody has the same thought. So now what's happening in, in our uh, social credit system is, this, is um, America and our elites have defined what a good citizen is. And now they are instrumentalizing that behavior. And that's a real danger. And they're using corporations in the same way that the Chinese Communist Party is using corporations. And they're doing this for many reasons. Number one, in China, they use corporations. So the, Chinese, so the social credit system really is intended to target companies over there. And uh, that's so they can get to, because the companies are the ones that touch the employees the most frequently, right? So in the United States, it's the same way. Because most people can be touched by companies, their employers. Right. They uh, 
you know, they can kind of, they can they're they're targeting companies to kind of they're permeating companies to kind of uh, to cascade it down this type of a group thing. So I would say that the social criticism we're already here. We've been here now for about the last um, four years or so. When when you took the first protest against Trump, were really beyond the deplorable the Jack and Mike Cernovich did was really Me Too. And Me Too was very instrumentalized. Behaviorally, it was something we had never seen in the United States before. Um, and it, 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 it resembled the protests of 1968. However, in order to be a, a good citizen, it was the first time I've ever seen it, you, you had to wear the pink hat. And that accessory uh, defined your, the quality of your citizenship. To the point where a judge felt comfortable going onto the bench and wearing that hat while presiding in court. It was such a, it was deemed to be such a non-political political statement. It would, that it was the, essentially the equivalent of, an, of, 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 of the great seal over the head of the judge sitting in the court, uh, which is, as, as you, you know, and, 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 no one, and no one stopped her. Adam. I want to continue with that question for one second. It's important. <laughs> So, but now the problem is, what do you do? So in China, uh, and again, I want to distinguish between Chinese people and the Chinese Communist Party. People are not their ruling regime. So I, I want to make sure that that's understood. So in China, um, the question is now, what happens to people that don't, um, that don't have the virtue, right? Because we, you know, the virtue has, has had one meaning in China, it's had one meaning in the West. And now our definition of virtue has become uh, identical to that of China. The, the, the definition of virtue in the United States used to be somebody who uh, had this type of, uh, they, they would speak out upon their own morals, even if there was a conflict with the way society wanted to restrain them, right? And now virtue is somebody that just abides by, um, you, know, the, the, um, the, you know, the current ideology and kind of its expression. So, um, so now the question is in China, what happens to people that aren't, that are dissidents or that let's just say they have a low, you wanted to use the word credit score. So I'm gonna use as a convenience, I'm gonna use that same word. Uh, that's not it. It's uh, Google uh, the four consciousnesses of C. Google that and put that up. It's really interesting. So now the question in the United States is um, what, happened, what happens in China to the dissidents who had low scores um, or whose um, the artificial intelligence would indicate that they're uh, a peril to uh, the ruling regime or that they'll create social instability. Well, we don't know. And I can tell you that my worry is that the, uh, just as the uh, 2008, uh, the Beijing Olympics and the uh, later, two, I think it was 2009, Shanghai um, World's Fair, a lot of that was used, I believe, to create camps for Uyghurs. And um, I think that now we're not having any, there's no oversight as to the facilities and the camps that China is building. So uh, presumably those hospitals. So I think that they are, um, yeah. So I, I do worry that the dissidents are being uh, disappeared. And in China, the entire judiciary is appointed from the Chinese Communist Party. So it's not like it is within the US. The, the system is uh, subservient to the Chinese Communist Party constitution. So now the question is, in America, now that we have 
some type of uh, formation of an equivalency, uh, what will happen with dissonance? What will happen with dissonance in the United States, in other words? Well, we've already defined what dissonance are. Dissonance are people now who are challenging um, the uh, utility of vaccines, right? And I think I saw Jack Rosenick yesterday tweeted that um, he suspected that internally within the White House, they're using the language uh, of terrorists, right? Uh, we saw the leak that, um, that uh, Darren Beatty got that he you know, put on a revolver, which was from the Department of Homeland Securities, where they defined something as basically a patriot. And uh, within patriot are people who challenge um, the, uh, the way government is spending money, people who challenge the constitutional uh, authority of uh, the, the people that uh, the politicians are exceeding their constitutional authority. And uh, a lot, of, and remember something, Martin Luther King was prosecuted for tax fraud, right? That's always how they get you. And right. so, so, so now they're pulling licenses from lawyers who take aggressive litigation positions, which are no more aggressive than the kind of garbage litigation that has historically been part of political claims. Uh, you know, if you were to go through the pleadings in, 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 in um, Bush versus Gore, you would find things that are no, but you know, they're sanctioning people, they're sanctioning Giuliani with no hearing. So these are these sort of marginal, but very significant uh, ways of getting their arms around what, what you describe is the, you know, measures to contain non-virtuous, non-conforming conduct. Well, I had a conversation, I had two conversations with Jack Kosovic about this. And it's interesting because I asked them how Antifa was going to metastasize, right? Antifa is not going away. Uh, so how is Antifa now going to, um, how is the uh, phalanx, what's the phalanx gonna be chasing now? And he said exactly what you just said. He said that they're now going to be going after kind of this uh, judiciary type of challenge, basically as this, uh, I'll use my term, maybe like a militarized appeal force in itself. So the, the same thing that we saw in um, uh, with the, the uh, court resolution of uh, the disposition of that, that guy who was, who, uh, was uh, found guilty of uh, being on somebody's neck and killing Darren Sh Derek Chauvin, right? And he thinks now- Oh gosh, yeah, okay. Now that they're gonna go after PTA boards and uh, judiciary, uh, kind of the judiciary, exactly like you said, where I guess, you know, the Giuliani will get attacked on the, the, by the bar, right? And beneath that will be the, you know, the Antifa type of militias that will go after the PTAs and will go after the actual decisions of those judges and intimidate the judges ability to kind of make free decisions. Sort of like a Red Guard type of phenomenon. Well, Red Guard- As of the Cultural Revolution. Well- But not, but not top down necessarily. I've tried using the Red Guard as an example and I've been corrected several times by people from China who, who follow me through VPN and who I know in China as well. And uh, they don't want me using the example of the Red Guard because of the horrificness of the Red Guard and the amount of violence that occurred. Um, I can't say whether we're gonna have that same type of violence. But if it's a matter of degree, I mean, just like everything, I understand that just everything 
you know, that sounds fascistic doesn't isn't the next Holocaust. I would say that what you're saying, and I agree with it, is that where people, particularly the middle class, right, is stripped of any type of political, social, legal type of um, currency, and there's a helplessness. And then you get a violent force that comes in um, that uh, is granted certain privileges. And uh, you're, you're, you're using that as your description of the Red Guard, which I do agree with. On that happy note, we're going to go into the weekend. Adam, fantastic as usual. We could do this all day. Uh, it's been great talking to you. I hope um, a couple of people uh, enjoyed uh, joining us. I hope we do it again soon. And thanks for all your tips on live streaming. We wouldn't have those people without you, I'm sure. Thank you so much for having me as a guest. So long, everybody. Hey, thank you for listening to the Coleman Nation podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. For more information, please visit the show's website at coleman-nation.com. That's coleman-nation.com. Or you can visit my blog at likelihoodofconfusion.com. Join us next time on the Coleman Nation podcast and have a great day.